Hey, hey, you're listening to Johnny's Secret Stash on WRHC 106.7 FM out of Three Oaks, Michigan, and WRHZ uh, 93.5 out of Sawyer, Michigan. Uh, You can hear us every Friday from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time and replayed on Wednesdays from 10 p.m. to 11 Eastern Time as well. Uh, We're also available through a podcast. And just look up Johnny's Secret Stash, No H, on Podbean, Apple, iTunes, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I was fortunate enough to be able to talk with Bill Bilby. He's a board member at the Acorn Theater, also a founding member of the Newports out of the south suburb of Chicago. Very interesting story. They uh, first formed when Bill was like in eighth grade and then uh, resurrected in 2014 and been playing hard ever since, added some uh, uh, some brass to their mix, another a nine-piece band, and whenever this coronavirus pandemic is over, we're hoping to be able to see them playing. They're scheduled to play the uh, Friday of the 4th of July weekend, that's July 3rd, at the Acorn Theater, and they've got a couple other gigs coming up. You could also check out their album on Spotify or just available as a CD. It's called The Newports Live at the Acorn Theater, recorded by our favorite sound guy, uh, Evan Margle, over at the Acorn Theater. So here we go with uh, the great interview I had with Bill Bilby, and uh, enjoy. All right, I'm here with Bill Bilby from the Newports out of uh, the south suburbs and uh, doing a lot of, of shows in the southwest Michigan area. Uh, Bill, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. And um, so you are uh, one of the founding members of the Newports, which, uh, well, why don't you describe what, what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of band is it? What kind of music you guys play? Well, we started... Yeah, we started in eighth grade in 1961 uh, doing, uh, you know, sort of guitar-based instrumental covers of top 40 songs and uh, made it through the Beatles era in uh, high school, uh, performed around the south suburbs, 61 to 66, and um, then took about 40-some years off and... uh, in was it summer 2014 uh a couple of us had been in touch and uh decided we'd host an open mic at the acorn as a sort of one-off sort of thing and um one thing led to another and we've been performing ever since doing um soul rock and blues we're uh, now a nine-piece band uh with four horns uh just two of us from the original lineup but six of us were like in adjacent bands back in our high school days that's amazing. I didn't really think I realized all that. That's unbelievable. So you guys started in eighth grade. What what uh, what what instrument did you play? So um, I played rhythm guitar then. So um, uh-huh. when I was in, when I when I was in like seventh grade, my buddy Brian Sal had started teaching me how to uh, play the guitar. I got I think when I was in sixth grade, and uh, he was a guitarist and a natural at it, and. Uh, 
there was sort of an energetic guy in our class, Bob Getson, who um, who had a drum set. Uh, he was a drummer. His older brother was in a rock band at the time. And he said, why don't we put together a band for the eighth grade talent show? And um, so... And which, which school did you guys go to? Where did you that guys was, go to South uh, That was uh, the Riverdale Dalton area. We went to Roosevelt School in Dalton. And um, we played... Um, Apache and an uh, instrumental version of Runaway and won the 8th grade uh, talent show. And uh, so we went from being the shy wallflowers to like instant heroes in our oh, yeah. grade school. And then we had our 8th grade graduation party like coming up two weeks later and they hired us to be the band for that party. So we had our first paying gig two weeks later and uh, we were in business. So uh, that's, that's how the whole thing started. Well, that's amazing. Uh, so you were playing rhythm guitar back then. Uh, yeah. And, and who were some of the founders, the the, the guys you mentioned? Yeah, um, it started out just the three of us. Uh, Brian Salvage, who uh, played uh, lead guitar. We didn't do vocals uh, early on. Eventually, he took he started doing vocals. And uh, Bob Gesson was the drummer. And then... Uh, so they two, two guitars and a drummer? Two, two guitars and a drummer that first uh -huh. year. Um and that, that that first summer, then when we got to high school, um, a couple of the guys came on. Uh, Terry Tritt, who's um, our musical director now, plays tenor sax and has been a musician his whole, his whole life. Uh, he joined us, uh, I think that was until 62. And then um, Bob Caroli on keyboards and uh, Skip Jones uh, on guitar as well. Skip was... Uh, more of a backup singer than a guitar player. But, uh -huh, uh, anyway, uh -huh. so we were just a guitar band just, for a while. And, and you were just doing um, instrumentals at that point. That, and that was uh, people brought in and, and uh, hired you as their band and, you know, no singers or anything. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, uh, as I recall, Bob had a microphone that we could run through uh, Brian's, uh, Brian's yeah. amp, and we did maybe three or four vocals at first. And after, you know, it took about a year before we were doing, doing more than just a handful of vocals. But, you know, back then, 1961, you know, rock instrumentals were like Johnny and the Hurricanes, you know. This, oh, right, right. You know, and, and um, we had Terry on sax, and so we'd be doing... So you could take any song and make it into a Johnny and the Hurricane style, uh, style <laughs> rock thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so then you uh, did that for a couple of years and went on your merry way, and, and, uh, and you became a professor, right? Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, we, we did it for – I stayed at the band with, uh, for our four years at Thornton Township High School in South Suburban Harvey, and then I left the band when I went off to college at the University of Illinois, and um, they they stuck it out for another year. And yeah, and I was I was I was the least musically accomplished person in the band. So um, even though I would have liked to have gone to the junior college and stayed with the band, I knew that, uh, or my my parents knew that I'd be better off getting uh, a college ed education and maybe more than that. So yeah, one thing led to yeah. another. Yeah, you're probably right about that. Yeah. <laughs> At least you had the flexibility, because then you could uh, always write right. music. Mm -hmm. Did you do any kind of music when you were in college? Did you play in any bands when you were in college? My my first year down at Illinois, um, there was a band called uh, the Terminal Pros. Um, and that name, they were named after terminal, terminal Probation at the University of Illinois. That meant you were on your last probation before before getting kicked out of school, <laughs> and and their their bass player did flunk out of school. They were a frat band for Chi Phi fraternity, and 
their their bass player uh, flunked out of school and only came back on weekends. So I was the weekday bass player. So I played um, mostly uh, gigs on, on Wednesday nights. Wednesday night is always a big party night in the frat scene. So uh, I did that uh, my freshman year, and then didn't didn't do any music at all really until uh, I got to graduate school in um, Madison in 1972 and um, hung out with a bunch of uh, long-haired hippies and uh, we started a band just just for fun and started doing just a we did a hand, handful of gigs um, we, we, we changed our name for almost every gig but the the, the band the name that's, that, that stuck was uh, Anonymous Bosch and um, we performed around Madison with that band. A uh, couple guitars, keyboard player. I played bass. Uh, really so good. The transition to bass uh, starting in college was that a tough uh, transition to go? Well, no, it's actually in high school. You know, I, oh, I, oh I, even when I, you were in high school, you transitioned. In, 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 in high school, I played. I started out by playing rhythm with sort of heavy gauge flat strings on my guitar to get sort of a more bass kind of uh, timbre to it, and then finally switched to bass. I think my junior year. Um, so, so yeah, by the time I got to college, I was a bass player with a few couple years behind me. Right. Did you ever do any singing? Do you do any singing now? Um, only um, towards the end of the last set at those four-hour gigs. They'll let me do, you know, uh, Gloria or something like that. Um, I, no, I'm not the strongest singer in, uh, in, in the group. I'm, uh, so, no, I, don't have, I, I, I rarely attempt to sing unless we really have some time to kill and <laughs> playing to a crowd of mostly friends. Well, you have uh, founder status too, so <laughs> mm-hmm. right. that's great. Um, and uh, you know, so uh, you went to graduate school in Madison, and then uh, you made your way out to the West Coast, uh, and you were teaching at Berkeley. Is that right? Uh, no, UC Santa Barbara. UC Santa Barbara, right? Okay, but um, uh, obviously, you still maintained an interest in music. You wrote the. Um, the publication uh, that you had sent me before, which I had read at the time, but it's been a couple months since. Uh-huh. This is the third time we tried to, to, try to do a, uh, an interview. I, you know, first time I had to cancel, was the last time we weren't able to get in touch, and finally we were able to do it today, which I really appreciate. But uh, for that last one, you sent me a outstanding um, uh, uh, article, or it was a publication about... Um, uh, about m- music in the South suburbs, and talk about that a little bit. T- you know, yeah. Okay, so so it's called it's called uh, rock in a hard place, homegrown cultural production in the post Elvis era, and um, the uh, and so I wrote that in two thousand two thousand two. It was actually I was um, I happened to be president of the American Sociological Association back then, and that was my presidential uh-huh. address. So that was. You know, that was 40, 40 years, you know, about 40 years past my rock and roll days, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> at least the glory days in high school. Um, and, uh, you know, rock and roll was like sort of a, a, a distant memory and also sort of a dream that had always been with me. And I started talking, to it to my, talking about it to my graduate students about this interest on you know, we were we were a really early rock and roll group. We were, you know, back in sixty one, sixty two, right, right. long before the Beatles. There was hardly anybody out there. I thought, where did all this stuff come from? So I just I thought I can I'm gonna go try and track down the guys that were in those first generation of uh, rock bands out of the South Suburbs. The guys that started in, you know, fifty eight, fifty nine, sixty, 
and you know, and get them to talk about how they decided to pick up in instruments and uh, what their influences were, and were they rebels or were they band kids, and why weren't there any any girls in the band, and so on. And uh, I did it just sort of as a, as a, a one-off, you know, stream of consciousness thing to my students uh, at one of our seminars, and they and they encouraged me to take it seriously and really do that study. So. Uh, it's not at all like anything else I was doing as a sociologist. So, uh, so I did that, and that's that sort of got me back into the idea of playing again and uh, sort of getting it back together. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm remembering it now, and it was uh, uh, a really interesting quantitative analysis of that whole music genre and what got people into bands and mm -hmm. sort of the, you know, uh, and it did have that whole discussion about females in bands. And uh, it was more like, well, their parents, I think you just decided that the anomaly that uh, uh, why the females weren't as prevalent doing these, um, doing these kinds of things was because their parents weren't willing to let them go into bars at night. Yeah. Whereas yeah. the parents of the boys were a little bit more likely to. Yeah, was yeah. yeah. So what I discovered, first thing I discovered, first thing I discovered is, you know, the, the, the story you always hear is the first rock and rollers were these rebels. You know, they were like pre-punk yeah. punks and they picked up guitars and learned how to play. It turned out that, that wasn't the case. Most of the guys that were in these early rock bands came out of the high school bands, could read music and all that. And you go back and look at that and there were more girls in the high school band than bands than boys, and if you look at who was buying records back then, it was more girls than boys. So the girls were following the music, they had the musical talent, but they were never in bands, and, and yeah, ultimately I concluded that um, the girls were under much closer surveillance from uh, their parents, even even when you're playing at places where there was no alcohol served. We, we actually never played at places that were, where alcohol was served. We were under 18. Right, right. Well, so then did you, in your interviewing, I think you said you interviewed like 400 people for the article, mm -hmm. is that right? Yeah, and, a lot. And did you um, interview anybody and, uh, that gave um, that kind of an answer, that, well, I would have loved to have been in a band, but my parents wouldn't let me? I and mean, was there that kind of a discussion at any time? Um, well, I did. I, I didn't. You know, I I didn't. I didn't interview many of the women who followed the band, so I didn't get the oh, firsthand okay. accounts. But and and uh, when I'd asked the guys why weren't there any girls around, um, their answer was normally, "Well, you know, we were doing this so we could attract girls. Um, yeah. you know, we we didn't want them as bandmates. We want them as fans. So th there might have been a little bit of social control going on there too. You know, like this is a this right, is a male right. this is a male space and. And, you know, and, and, you know, it's sort of the same kind of thing. You know, you're not going to let your 14-year-old daughter go out with a bunch of teenage boys and hang out in their garage to do uh, uh, practice on a Thursday night, let alone go out and perform on a Saturday night. Right. Well, obviously that changed. And what do you mm -hmm. think, how do you think that changed? I mean, where, where did that switch come from? That uh, just the hippie movement and, and the women... Being like, I don't care what my parents say. Uh, how do you think that that trans? Oh yeah, you know, no, you know. I mean, if you think back, um, you know, even back in the you know the the late sixties to early seventies, you know, there was Janis Joplin and Big Brother, and there's uh, Grace Slick and Jefferson Airplane. Right. But but, but most uh, rock and roll uh, groups were all men, or maybe you know. Uh, a, a female singer uh, backed by a bunch of men. So uh, I think yeah, really the staple yeah, singers it yeah. was more family oriented, I guess. Yeah, it didn't really change until the early seventies. The you know, singer songwriter yeah. era, 
Bonnie Ray, oh, Bonnie Ray and, uh, and Linda Ronstadt and Carol King when she started doing her own stuff, not just writing for right. others. Um, Carly Simon. Well, Joan Baez was late. And Joan Baez, yeah, but that that was folk. Yeah, you know, yeah, that was, yeah that's in a whole other. Folk was safer. <laughs> yeah, right. Just being in the uh, um, uh, in the Bowery or in uh, Greenwich Village of New York, maybe mm-hmm. parents thought that their kids were safer. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, so uh, that that kind of resurrected your interest in music. I mean, obviously, between the '60s and or the late '60s and and 2002 when you first did it, you probably still followed music. You just didn't yeah, I consumed a lot. I, yeah, I consumed a lot of music. Um, did your musical no. interest change between uh, when you were playing in junior high, high school, and college to to when you know you started writing this article in 2002? Yeah, yeah. Um, when I you know when I went up to Madison in 1972, I was there 72 to 77. And I uh, got really into the, the music scene, again, not as a performer until we started Anonymous Bosch uh, towards the end of that era, and totally into, like, new, new writers of the Purple Stage. You know, oh, we, sure. dressed, uh-huh. yeah, we, dre- we had long hair, we dressed in cowboy shirts and wore cowboy boots and, uh, you know, Grateful Dead, new writers, right. um, and that, you know, that sort of thing. And also, we all got into the singer-songwriter movement, sort of, the, you know, uh, Tom Waits, uh, John oh, right. Prine, J.J. Kale, um, right. you know, sort of the, the little gritty, the grittier side of singer-songwriters. Uh, right, right. You know, not so much James Taylor or that kind of thing. Yeah, I hear you. Or Neil Diamond. And then, or, and then when I got just to kind of, yeah, yeah, more gritty. And when, I got, good, yeah. when, I got to, when I got to Southern California, it was all, you know, Steely Dan and the Eagles and Linda Ronstadt right. and, uh, uh, Jackson Brown, uh, and, uh, but, you know, I, I always, I got, in 1966, 67, my sophomore year at Illinois, I got, me and my uh, buddies all got, we, we discovered uh, the Black Soul Stations in Chicago and got totally into WVON and, you know, uh, sure, the, 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 you know, the soul hits and so on. So that was, that was always a passion of mine all along. So I, uh-huh. I, I well, that was the that kind music. of music that you guys began playing in 61, but you uh, started getting into it when you were in college, sounds like. Yeah, I know. We had, for two years, we had Skip Jones, uh, a biracial, uh, from a biracial family, and um, he would sneak in some Jimmy Reed songs into our, uh, into our playlist and uh, uh, or uh, Rufus Thomas walking the dog and stuff like that. So we had a we had a sprinkling of that of that in our playlist, but um, we didn't we we did we didn't have the talent to fully embrace that kind of music back in our high school high school years. Um, so did you continue to play bass or guitar uh, into high school? I'm sorry. Uh, after I'm sorry. After um, you know, you were at Madison and you were in your regular life. Did you continue to play any music? You just no. From the, yeah. You just kind of put your your guitar and your bass off into the corner and, and yeah. Really, well, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you sort of a personal story about that. But yeah, I, I uh, when I was in Madison, I took some. I, I got serious for a little bit. Took some lessons for a while, and I got this really cool, beat up old. Uh, Jazz master guitar, and uh, th- that stayed with me all those years. And a Fender twelve string I bought, uh, acoustic twelve string I bought when I was a hippie. 
Um, but no, the, the guitar stayed in the corner. My, my then wife, it was like the gunslinger who had given up, uh, given up, uh, being a, being a gunfighter. And that guitar in the corner was like, uh, playing the movie Shane, you know, uh, Alan sure. Ladd's guns are in the corner. And yeah. it was like, she was sort of thought, you know, if he goes back into that, I, I, I'm afraid that I, you know, he's going to go down a road that's not the road that I sort of saw us, uh, going on. And, well, and it turns out in the end, it, it, she was right because when I got back into it, uh, we sort of drifted apart. And before I knew it, I ended up back in the Chicago area and had the band back together. So, uh, so no. For the, the, the quick answer is no. For all those years, I I did not play at all. Like I consumed a lot. Uh, and then back in 2002, when I started doing that research, um, I got the. The band from our graduate school days back together. I got Anonymous Bosch back together for uh, a performance at one of our professional meetings. And um, Brian from Newports joined us. And that led to um, reconnecting with the, with, the, with the other Newports guys. But, uh, know, that's great. So this is early 2000s? Yeah. So there was a 30-year period when I did nothing. But uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, at that point, was Brian playing guitar? Yeah, uh, Brian. Brian stuck with it. Uh, we 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 lost track of each other when he went to the Navy, and I think it was 1968, uh, and reconnected in the 80s. And he did. He was in a, in a bands that did like the Holiday Inn Circuit, um, sort of a not quite almost famous kind of band. Uh, yeah, you know, really good musicians who made a living uh, made a living at it, uh, but. You know, uh, like a wedding band, just real top, uh, well done music, but uh, you know, not not really doing their own stuff. More, uh, right, more right. Cover yeah. stuff. Mostly cover stuff. I never heard them play, but you know, Brian's told me the stories. <clears throat> but uh, too many late nights and too much drinking and so on, and and they they I think ended up mostly burning burning out of it. But Brian is a uh, wonderful vocalist and guitarist. He's he, he, what he'll say to you say to me is you know I'm musical but I don't like musical performance so he so he's not part of the Newports anymore Thank once you. every couple of years we lure him out of retirement and perform right right uh, but uh, uh, yes he's, so he's, you guys this uh, band that was playing in Madison that you resurrected in the in the early 2000s uh, how long did you guys play as as that group? Uh, just, just a couple years, two, two, three years. Uh, uh-huh. we were all, we were all graduate students. Uh, well, we weren't all graduate students. Uh, we were, three or four of us were studying sociology. Um, one of them is now a professor of public health at Harvard. Another one, uh, is a professor at Yale. Um, a couple I, 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 uh, I lost touch with. Our front, our front man, Hal, Last I heard, he was serving time for um, sticking up a gas station in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. So, uh, oh yeah, uh, we went on different paths. Different paths, right? But anyway, so so the guys that stayed in sociology, um, we're the ones who reconvened uh, in uh, Chicago in 2002. As um, we changed our name from Anonymous Bosch to Thin Vita, and. that that the story behind that name is you know your beat is your academic resume, and we delayed getting the band back together until we all had tenure and were firmly established in our careers. Uh, 
Uh-huh. So, the, so the band name Thin Vita was a, a cautionary tale to our, our graduate students, particularly our musical ones, saying, don't start the band now. Wait till <laughs> after you get tender and, and, and then get the band back together. Yeah, then you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or in the old days of tenure, anyway. Uh, yeah. And so then how did the uh, reuniting of the Newports come into effect? Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So so I've been in touch with Terry from the, from the original lineup. Uh, and... Um, Jeff Sachs, who was a guitarist and trom- and uh, horn horn guy, plays tram- trombone, who was part of our in other bands back then, but had stayed in touch with us. And um, then uh, Eddie Beard and uh, Daryl Neal, um, two guys that uh, were in uh, soul bands back in the '60s, and who I knew from high school. And um, we all talked about getting together. And Terry performs with this band out of uh, Northwest Indiana called Scamp that um, he introduced me to when uh, um, I got married to Keek in 2003 and we had a big wedding party at the Lakeside Inn and we hired Scamp as our band. Anyway, the front man from Scamp was this guy Mark Rogers, this crazy singer-guitarist and this great uh, drummer, Gene Nuri, and when we decided to do this open mic, say that was in 2014, so that's 11 years later, um, we're talking about, well, who's going to front this band? Brian can't come all the way out here uh, and probably doesn't want to anyway, and Terry says, uh, well, yeah, hey, I'll ask, uh, I'll ask Mark, and so um, we're, at the, we're, at, we're at the Acorn uh ready to do our, like, five songs before the regular open mic starts, and we know this guy, Mark Rogers, might show up. And if he doesn't, uh, I think Jeff was prepared to sing if, if he had to. Uh, and, and this wild guy shows up, who I've not seen since uh, our wedding party in 2003, and uh, just no rehearsal or anything. We start playing <laughs> bar, bar band songs, and we have a couple of horns, you know, and, and you know, they're doing sort of, uh, you know, easy riffs, but we, we just nail it for the night. And uh, we had the time of our lives, and just so happened uh, that uh, there was a guy there doing a professional video of Open Night that night. So we got it, we had, we got, had uh, almost studio-quality sound and, and great video from that night. And we thought, man, this really, this really worked. And so we did, I think, a couple more open mics at the Acorn and then just started doing gigs. And, uh, you know, by, uh, by the following, by the following summer, we were performing almost every weekend from, uh, Memorial Day through, uh, the Harvest Day weekends in Harbor Country in the That's south of Chicago. Taking a little break from our interview with Bill. And you're listening to Johnny's Secret Stash and uh, WRHC 106.7 FM out of Three Oaks, Michigan, and WRHZ 93.5 out of Sawyer, Michigan, also available through a podcast, Johnny's Secret Stash. And back to the interview with Bill Bilby. So did you have an affiliation with the Acorn before that? I know you and I met because we were both on a on a committee through the Acorn, uh, but that was mm-hmm. after we'd already you know gotten established, maybe 2018, 17 or 18. So uh, 
when you first played there in 2014, did had you had some kind of relationship with the Acorn or or spent any time there? What was your... I was I was um, yeah. Keke and I Keke and I were regulars. We had actually we had one of our our uh, first dates as adults was uh, New Year's Eve uh, 2003 at the Acorn. Steve Evans, a great jazz singer, was performing. Uh, and um, but anyway, so I was a regular. We were both regulars at the Acorn. David Fink pretty well, um, and um, Mike Kennedy back when he was uh, he was the the manager of the place and had his own uh-huh. band that played there. So um, so when it was time, and I started doing a little bit of open mic, really easy stuff uh, on my own. And um, so when I started when I started talking to the guys from the old band scene. Um, I was able to approach uh, approach the Acorn and say, you know, you you you've been kind enough to let me get on stage and do a couple songs on open mic. I think I can get, I think I can bring a, a whole band up here. And they said, hey, why don't you why don't you host one night? It sounds like fun. So uh, that's how that happened. Terrific. Yeah, that's great. And that led uh, me to, and then I became involved with the board. When they went nonprofit, I became on, came on the board and oh, got involved right, right. in all sorts of ways. So I've been sort of attached ever since. Yeah. Um, so, I you know you sent me a song list that you guys had from 1961, and yeah. this song list has got 110 songs on it. You guys are you know 1961, I guess eighth eighth or ninth grade. Yeah, playing all these songs. <laughs> this is amazing. Uh, is this still the same kind of song list that you guys are playing today, or did you transition to other genres of music? You know, how how is your uh, repertoire changed over that time. Yeah, but yeah, the, the, that list from back then. The reason there's 109 songs on it is because um, that was before Xerox machines uh, <laughs> and and before personal computers, so you could add songs, but you couldn't take songs off. Um, yeah. had like you know, this is all done uh, uh, with carbon paper. But uh, yeah, this is this is the that was the song list from you know like uh, April of 1961 through September of 61 and. Um, well, I, I see Peter Gunn's on there, and we open we often open our shows with sort of a Blues Brothers version of Peter Gunn. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But yeah, there's a lot of a lot of silly songs on here as well. Uh, silly covers of sentimental, you know, teenage love yeah. songs. Uh, but there's some cool stuff on here. But um, that was in time for the early '60s. That was the kind yeah. of stuff that people yeah. would go out to listen to. Yeah. So I think two things sort of broke it open for the kind of music that that I think we. We all, one way or another, are passionate. One was, you know, the Stones and the Beatles came on the scene in 1963. Um, yeah. uh, the, the, the Beatles making making vocals a must, and then the Stones making sort of, you know, white white gritty covers of uh, R&B and blues songs. Uh, right, cool, cool thing to do. And uh, so, there was a little bit of that too, but yeah, right, saying, right, yeah. right. So, so we sort of. You know, I, I guess in my last years with the band before going off to college, we were sort of becoming the kind of band that um, the, the Blues Brothers movie evoked. You know, oh, um, okay, white guys into R and B and the blues and looking for authenticity and uh, macho toughness, uh, even if we had come from you know comfortable with suburban background. Suburban Kirk County. Yeah. And then and I remember when the blues when the when the Blues Brothers uh, movie came out. Um, oh my God, that was the thinking 
thinking, you know, boy, this this is exactly where my roots are. You know, the the the, the shopping center they destroyed. Yeah, that's right. That's Dickey yeah. Square Shopping Center in Harvey, about uh, you know a mile from our high school. Yeah, and that's and so, story there. <laughs> yeah, so so what, one thing we like to say when we do interviews is that you know to us the Blues Brothers movie is a documentary, not a uh, not a work of fiction. Yeah. Um, but but part of that is the story we tell about the gritty gritty roots of our band. You know, we we have some gritty roots, but we also have comfortable uh, uh, comfortable suburban roots as well. But we we totally embrace the the blue soul side of where we're coming from. And again, we have, you know, we have Eddie and Daryl who, you know, grew up in uh, soul bands and sort of played the uh, Chicago Gary version of the Chitlin circuit when they were in bands together back uh-huh. in, the, in the late sixties. So, so, so now you don't really see it as being that you've changed that much from the kind of stuff you were into. I mean, you've, You've honed it a little bit, evolved from yeah. it a little bit, but it's not like it's a new band, a different band now. It's, it's right. a newer, stronger, more evolved band. Yeah, and and for for me, um, it's it's been really challenging uh, and rewarding musically because I was good enough to to sort of fake it in doing bar band music, you know, all the way through. Um, my graduate school days or frat band music, uh, and uh, you know when when uh, Anonymous Bosch got back together with Thin Vita, we did you know uh, Wilson Pickett songs and uh, Born in Chicago and uh, Whittier Boulevard and you know sort of bar band songs. But you know now the band with four horns and you know some people who you know, we're we're working some charts and, you know, now all of a sudden we're doing a day in the life or something like that. Oh, yeah, wow. Uh, I, I, I had to grow up quickly. I'd I I've learned stuff I didn't even know I didn't know. Um yeah. I, I had to, I had to relearn how to play bass. The drum uh, Gene our drummer had to explain to me that uh you know bass really is a rhythm in this in, instrument. You, you know, you you're playing bass he said I could tell you switch from rhythm guitar to bass guitar because you play bass like a guitar player. Uh-huh. And he said, you're going to stand right next to me and, you know, we're going to work on getting you in the pocket. And it's totally changed how I played. So, so in that way, it's, it's changed a lot. Um, you know, it's a much, it's a, it's hard to explain, but um, even songs I played back when I was, in, you know, 24 years old in graduate school, um, it's it's more authentic in a soulful type way, but but also more authentic in a musical way. I mean, I, you know, it's uh, yeah. the the beat is there in a way it was never there before, and uh, and that sort of thing. Right, even just playing notes, you're feeling it a little more. Yeah, way. yeah. But and then we're doing things like you know we do uh, we do uh, the doors touch me, but we do it with horns. So oh, yeah, that's sure. that, that's a really different kind of version. You know, it's. You know, Mark is channeling Jim Morrison, but then there's this uh, horn chorus going on. Um, or we do Blind Faith, Can't Find My Way Home with uh, horn stuff. Oh, you know, I haven't mentioned Jumpin' Gene Halton, too, our, our harmonica player. Oh, oh who's, yeah, harmonica player. Terrific. And he's, he, I, I know him from the world of sociology. He's a professor at Notre Dame. I gave a talk at Notre Dame you know, 10 years ago or so, and they knew about my music background. So, oh, you got to have lunch with Gene. He, I, we think he plays music, too, and Besides being an accomplished theoretician in sociology, he's uh, one of the best uh, one of the best blues blues harmonica players in the Midwest. 
So anyway, he brings that whole authenticity to it too. Um, so, so, you know, what talking about can't find my way at home with, you know, um, our version of it. We have this great horn line going on and this soulful harmonica going on. And so we take a, a classic rock song that grows out of sort of Eric Clapton and Steve Winwood's connection to bluesy music and make it our own. And uh, that's what really makes this band sort of click and makes it worthwhile. We have this really distinctive version, distinctive but authentic version of sort of Soul blues and rock classics. Yeah, well, you said it. Making it your own—that that is definitely the sign of uh, taking it to the next step for a cover band. Anyone's going to yeah. be able to just—I mean, not anyone, but you know, many many high school bands are able to just yeah. mirror what they hear on the record or you know on the recording, right? Or you know what they can do uh, with the tabs that they get off online and stuff. Mm-hmm. But to make it your own and to, and to feel it and to uh, taking in, you know, yeah. uh, improvising directions and things like that is uh, it's got to be more satisfying too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Mark, Mark, our front man, uh, you know, he Scamp is still together. Scamp, the, the band that played at my wedding in, in two thousand uh-huh. wedding party in two thousand three, they've been together for like twenty five thirty years doing, you know, sort of hard rock bar band kind of stuff. Um, but he'll come up with song. He'll He'll come up with a song that I've never heard of. It might be famous, it's just I was, you know, not my demographic. Like Franz Ferdinand's "Take Me Out," but just just this last uh, last fall, he said there's this Tom Waits song called uh, "Going Out West," and there's this version that's recorded live, and I want all the guys to listen to it. None of us had heard of it, and we listen to it, and it's like it's like weird Tom Waits, but it's got like a cool beat to it. And we worked on it. We worked on it. Worked a Gene, the drummer. Gene Murray, the drummer, hears it and says, I just don't see how this works. And we turned it, uh, we turned it into this coolest song that is both true to Tom Waits' sort of ethos and takes what we do and gets this driving beat and this, the horns and the harmonica. And uh, the only time we performed it was we performed it once, and that was at our uh, show at the, at the Acorn last November. Uh, wow. that, was, that was our last uh-huh. of the season, and we can't wait to get back on the road again. Uh, yeah. So uh, it sounds like you play at the Acorn a lot. That's that's outstanding. That's one of my favorite venues uh, because it's so accessible, and it's so and the, the sound is so good there. And there's not a bad yeah. seat, and you know the Acorn just brings some of the greatest small bands through there. I, I just am impressed all the time, and they do well, such you know, a great job. Yeah, the other thing is, you know, for me, I'm getting on, on the stage where I've seen, uh, you know, Richie Havens and, you yeah. know, Paul Cantner from Jefferson Airplane. I mean, right. you know, heroes of mine have played on the, you know, Corky Seagull and and those guys. And it's like, yeah. man, I get to play here. Yeah, right, exactly. So you guys branched out from that after you got things going a little bit. And, uh, what other kinds of places have you played in? Places as big as the Acorn or smaller or... 
You know, what kind you know, of other venues have you guys gotten to play in? Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's a, a little bit of everything. Uh, you know, one of the coolest places we we played at uh, a couple summers ago. Uh, we played at the Jazz Showcase in Chicago, which is a oh, yeah, venue that goes back dec- dec- yeah. decades. Uh, I thought they were limited to strictly jazz. Anything I've seen there has just been straight-up jazz. We sort of talked our way into that, <laughs> in, in, into it. My my professional meetings were back in Chicago, uh, so I knew I could get a you know a bunch of people come just to hear us. Right, uh, and we you know, and it was a Monday night where you know they usually book something a little bit offbeat and I and uh so anyway they booked us but you know kept it open to the public and uh and and we killed it there too. I was always proud. All those yeah. really comfy seats and stuff and yeah um yeah. all kinds of great artwork on the walls. It's it's a really cool yeah. place. Yeah, we're and talking we, about these places. We don't even know what's gonna happen. I mean we're recording this what? Uh uh April second and uh we're in the middle of this this pandemic shelter in. I mean, you know, everyone's yeah. stuck inside. All the bars and restaurants are closed indefinitely. A lot of these places probably aren't going to survive. All the yeah, all the musicians are trying to figure it out and figure out, you know, how they're going to continue to to feed themselves. And mm-hmm. it's just a, a crazy, crazy time. Yeah, and uh, so you know we're talking about these places. I I, I hope that they're going to be around. You know, it's just yeah. uh, just an amazing. Uh, it, it, it's just a, an intense, crazy time for all of this. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been pl- you know most of the typical typical gigs for us besides the Acorn or like all the community festivals. You know, uh, Ship and Shore and oh, sure, know. like around the Southwest Michigan area. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, South Suburbs as well, and then sort uh-huh. of road, sort of roadhouse bar restaurants. Um, sure, all around. And you do all the booking, right? Yeah, yeah. So you reach out to like a particular bar you like, and and uh, you say, hey, we'd love to come and play there. Yeah, you yeah, know, and yeah. part of it is too, you know, um, mo- most of the other guys in my band are in other bands, so they, you know, they've been performing oh, at right. uh, Smokey Joe's out in Crete, and they'll, and they'll say, hey, why don't the Newports come play here? Or uh, right. Elements Wine Bar at Homewood. Uh, let's see, what is it? There's the, what's the wine place in Del Paraiso? <laughs> oh, so anyway, yeah. Um, and, you know, we don't want to be playing, you know, we're all in our late, late 60s to early 70s. We don't want to be playing three times a week. So uh, <laughs> so, so one, once a weekend during our season, which, again, runs from about Memorial Day to uh, to uh, Thanksgiving weekend, is, is fine for us. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's all up in the air. Um, Where do you guys our, find time to practice? What kind of place can you fit all into to, to do your practicing? Um, Elements Wine Bar in oh, is that so that's what we like to know that oh, oh, oh. the place I was trying to think of. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, no, where we practice. Um, Jeff has a Jeff has a practice space uh, in in his basement. Oh, there you go. Jeff yeah. Sachs, our guitarist, from on guy. That's uh-huh. out, but that's out that's out in the south suburbs. So we, we practice a lot. Uh, the whole, yeah. The, you the, got the a big. You know, a big repertoire of music and keep up yeah. the speed and to be comfortable with each other on stage. That's the only way to do it. Yeah, the four the four horn guys, Terry, Ralph, uh, uh, and Daryl and Jeff, 
and any of the keyboard players, since they're playing from charts most of the time, they get together, the five of them, and, and Terry is the musical director, and they'll get up to speed on a song, and then uh, the rest of us come in and get it in shape right. to, to perform. And yeah, so we, yeah. So they get together sometimes weekly, uh, and then uh, we try to get together at least once a month for uh, the whole band together to, to uh -huh. practice. Right. So uh, how big of a song list do you guys have now? We have a really deep one uh, now, in part because you know we do these big shows at the Acorn. We usually do one in the, one in the summer and one on Thanksgiving weekend, and we always want to have like eight or nine new, unique, distinctive things on the list. And so you know, so we're developing like sixteen new songs a year just doing that. Um, and then we do a lot of uh, sort of roadhouse four-hour gigs, you know, you start playing at nine and play till one in the morning uh, at uh, some of these, you know, get, get roadhouse places. And uh, so, you know, we mix in a lot of the, maybe do some more blue standards and places like that. So um, we have, you know, we, we, there's probably about 60 songs we draw upon. Um, and again, we, we shake it up so much that we'll go back and look at our little song list and say, hey, how do we let that drop off the list? Uh, right, right. You know, uh, Into the Mystic was like a really cool song. Oh, and, I love that. And, song. Then we'll, yeah. and then we'll bring it back. Uh, yeah. And, you know, we're doing, we're doing a little bit of original stuff now. Um, oh, that was, I was going to ask you that. So you guys have been writing your own songs too? Yeah, yeah. Um, Who usually yeah. does the writing? Well, uh, Jumpin' Gene, our harmonica player, has, has, a lot, has done a lot of original uh, music composition. So the first one we did in public was uh, uh, one, of, one of his that we did at the Acorn last time. And Terry's writing some horn-based stuff for us. Um, Terry's working on... We're, we're all tired of opening with Peter, Peter Gunn. Um, <laughs> we, we open at that when we go to, when we play at these like roadhouse bars where we bring our own sound because Mark can, Mark can, uh, stand out and get the sound just right, uh, basically do a sound check as we do Peter Gunn. But, uh, 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 Terry's writing a, a Newport's Overture, sort of a, a, a oh, uh, yeah, great. <laughs> just for, That's for that. And, and, have you guys done any recording? Um, just the live shows from the Acorn. So we, see, we have right. we have the one album which is based on our show from no, a year ago, November, November eighteen, uh, with that Evan recorded off the board. Evan Margol and right, Evan uh, Margol, yeah, he's the uh, sound guy at the Acorn. Yeah, and you know it, the the company that the company that that did the CD and just uh, put this the the CD together for us, you know, manufactured it. Were, um, they were amazed at the sound quality that came in for it. They said they'd never done a, done a live CD for anyone that had that quality sound with it. So that's a, that's a tribute to the, you know, what the Acorn has going on there in terms yeah. of the facility and Evan's ta talents. As it, Evan did all the mixing for us. But anyway, yeah. so uh, but we're one of, in fact one of the plans for uh, for this spring, this April, was to get into a, a recording studio and do some work, but. Um, that's not going to happen. So, yeah, right. <laughs> now that no one can but, be in but, the but, same room but, together. Yeah, but but once we get back uh, uh, all in the same, uh, we can all be in the same room again uh, and performing again. We'll also try to find some time to to do some studio stuff on 
um, you know, maybe do an EP with, uh, you know, maybe two original songs and two distinctive covers. Sure, sure. That's a good idea. So uh, do you guys do a lot of, like, onstage improvisation? I mean, you mentioned yourself, the new, new Rise of the Purple Sage and uh, mm-hmm. Great from Dead. And, you know, they're, they, they have these standards that um, Robert uh, Hunter wrote and mm-hmm. John, uh, uh, oh, geez, what's his name? Um, Barry. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they got a wrote songs with Bob Ware. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, they, they've got these standards. And mm-hmm. then they build off of them. And, yeah. you know, just go on and on for, for uh, extended periods of time. So are you, you guys doing things like that with, with the covers you're playing? Have you been exploring we'll around? And... We'll do a, a little bit. Like we do uh, the Stones' Can't You Hear Me Knocking? You know, which oh, is a, yeah. Well, that's you a, know, which is a long, long extended song. Yeah. And it, you know, has the a great guitar hook. And, 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 uh, and so we'll, 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 we, we do some of that. Um, and there's always there's, a, there's an interesting creative tension in the band because we have you know again the four horn, horns and Eddie on keyboard and you know they're all you know particularly Terry and Terry and Eddie uh, they're jazz improvisational artists improvisational uh-huh. artists as well so they can improvise on every anything but but they're also working out of off of charts and they're you know they're they're formal music you know they they're formally trained as musicians. Yeah. And then, then Mark, our front man, is totally by ear, but has been playing music his whole life. But he has a different sort of musical philosophy. So he and, he and Terry have been in scamp together for 30-some years with these different musical philosophies. And it really gets played out in, in our band because, you know, we want to get back into the sort of the, the totally synchronized groove of the horn lines that aren't just, you know... Um, uh, you know, what's Terry called? Blowing boats or something like that. You know, the, where they're really getting back into the, the the written chart, but we also do want to get the creativity and the improvisation on a, again a song like "Can't You Hear Me Knocking." Um, we don't do you know, you know we'll we'll do a song like "Coming Home Baby," um, the Herbie Mann song that's like a break song for a lot of bands. That's sort of a jam song. Um, We'll do a few songs like that, particularly on those long night gigs. Uh, but mostly our most dedicated van- fans, they, there's a certain kind of song they want to hear. Uh, they like hearing our distinctive version of it, but they don't want to, they don't want to watch us entertaining each other. So, you know, extended jams are most li- more likely to happen in the practice room than, than on stage. Yeah, yeah, almost like the sound check. Sometimes some of the best versions yeah. of have come out in the sound checks. Yeah, yeah. So um, I know you have the the concert coming up in July at the Acorn. Anything else coming up? Um, yeah, well, let's see. Wait, you know, again, everything's put up in the air because of the yeah, right, question. Well. So, so what's for sure weather permitting is uh, we have July third at the Acorn. Uh, that you know. Friday, July of, of uh, July Fourth weekend, and actually we're already booked our uh, annual Saturday of Thanksgiving show at the Acorn too. Um, we're doing um, music in the park at Three Oaks on the Saturday of uh, Labor Day weekend, and I'm anticipating. You know, that's usually like an hour long thing. The band's are in the pavilion there, and people are on the lawn. I'm thinking that um, Labor Day weekend, if things are pretty much 
back to some version of normal by then, that could end up being a, like an all-day festival. Um, so we're we're uh, we're looking forward to that. Um, we're doing something at uh, uh, there's a big uh, fundraise event for the Michigan Humane Society every fall at uh, the Blissful Barn in Three Oaks. We're already signed on to that. Um, if the beach festivals happen, I'm sure we'll be back doing that. What we don't know, you know, what's really up in the air is, you know, all these uh, restaurant yeah. bar places that cater to, uh, um, you know, adults who who want to hear nice music and have a good time and, and drink and, you know, when we'll be able to reopen and, uh, you know, like, you know, we'd love to get back to Elements and in in Valpo where we play outside and the weather's nice. And uh, but uh, that that remains to be seen. This this could be a a a really unusual season for us. Yeah, we just don't know how long uh, this is all going to last. And you know, even when the you know the all clear sounded, we don't know how long it's going to take to kind of get back to normal and people yeah. are be comfortable going back out. I mean. You know, we're all developed this fear of even, you know, breathing in the direction of people yeah. you're walking by. I mean, it's just, it's the most unusual time of my life, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty pretty wild. Well, listen, that that sounds great. And uh, it feels like July is far enough away that, uh, yeah. that that should that should be a go. And uh wish you guys the best of luck. This is so fun that you kind of, you know, had the opportunity to dig back in and and have this new old adventure, essentially, and and uh, be able to, you know, connect back up with your junior high and high school friends to, yeah. to do this kind of stuff and, um, yeah, and you, you know, know found and, this outlet. Yeah, and for, and for me, it was like, you know, living, you know, it was a dream playing in high school. I mean, I loved every minute of it. It was a thrill, and it's the exact same thrill you know, I'm 72 years old. Maybe I'm 73. I don't know. Um, and it's and it's you know it's the exact same thrill of the ringing in your ears after the night is over. And and you know and I've been able to like recapture this identity as a musician and have a band that's you know highly regarded in the area. And it's just it's and you know and so many people made it happen. And it, again, the Acorns are a huge huge part of it. So yeah. you know I can't I can't praise them enough too. Right. Well, you know you get to. Walk around with your hair long and maybe mm-hmm. put some beads on and get back into the rock and roll uh, genre. Although I'm looking at your um, Facebook page with mm-hmm. these photos of you guys back in junior high, and you were children, <laughs> but you were also <laughs> oh god, you know, yeah, these these uh, uh, matching outfits and stuff like that. And and now you look yeah. at like the you know the cover of the Newport's Live at the Acorn album. And uh, oh, I, that's that corner in between the buildings over there. Is that where you took the picture? Yep. And yeah. and, and and what we were going for? Terry's daughter, uh, Sarah, is a professional photographer, and I showed her uh, the cover of the uh, Butterfield East West album, where they're in front of the uh, oh man, I've been the museum, and I tried to find that one. <laughs> and and yeah, I, I said, this is this is about. the look. This is the look we're going for, and 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 she nailed it. The whole photo, most of the really good uh, publicity stuff you see on our posters uh, are from that one photo shoot at uh, at the uh-huh. Acorn. Yeah. Well, uh, again, best of luck with all this, and uh, you know, it sounds like you really are just enjoying this, and and that's what it's all about when it yep. comes yep. down to it. 
And yep. uh, fortunately, you know, it's the kind of band where it's all about just enjoying yourselves, you yep. know, and, yep. and the fact that it also gives uh, some of the other guys more exposure for, for their music and mm-hmm. gives you the nostalgia and, and this new release, that's that's terrific. So yep. the the your album, Newport Slive of the Acorn, is already out and available. Uh, it's available. How can people at, find that? Yeah. It's everywhere. It's, you know, all the streaming services. Uh, people Spotify, go to our, Pandora, it, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, it, yeah. Um, you can buy the physical version too. If you go to our website, newportsbluesrocksoul.com, you'll find links to everything. You'll find videos, music, and so on. newportsbluesrocksoul.com. Oh, that's terrific. All right. Well, thanks again, and uh, look forward to seeing you over the summer. Okay, great talking to you, John. Okay. Stay safe and healthy. You too. I'll see you back in Michigan. Thanks to Bill Bilberry. That was a terrific interview, a lot of fun. Glad we had a chance to speak. Uh, You're listening to Johnny's Secret Stash. We were on uh, WRHC 106.7 FM out of Three Oaks, Michigan, 93.5 out of Sawyer, Michigan, and, of course, also available as a podcast on uh, iTunes, um, uh, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts. And it's Johnny's Secret Stash. Find us, uh, no H in Johnny, and Uh, subscribe or like us or whatever, follow us, whatever you have to do on your podcast. Anyway, good night, everybody. Thank you.